Good morning to all of you. Thank you for that. Good morning. Douse with the nerves. My wife asked me the other day, do I ever get nervous when I speak in front? I said, yeah, sometimes. She couldn't believe me. She thought I never get nervous. Well, I do. Um, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of public speaking. I mean, I love public speaking, and I never get nervous when I have to speak publicly. My nervous stems from the fact that I might get it wrong. And so I hope this morning I get it right. They asked me back. I am back after not so long of an absence. So I think they thought I got it right the last time. So we're going to hope I get it right this time. If you don't see me again in uh, maybe two years' time, you know why. I got it wrong, and I will be taken apart on Wednesday evening for getting it wrong. But I believe I, I should not get it wrong. We hope that the process of studying helps. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts for His message. Gracious Father and our Lord God, You who are the King of glory, You are the God from beginning to end, You are the Alpha and the Omega. It is to You we come this morning. And we come with grateful hearts because we know and we acknowledge that we are but recipients of your grace, your mercy, your goodness. That the only reason that we can be here, the only reason we can sit here with the receptive hearts to your word, the only reason we can love you, that we can worship you, is but because of you. We know that within us there's nothing good, there's nothing that is worthy of your affection. But we are but recipients of your grace. And so Lord, we're thankful, we're grateful, we ask for the blessing of your word on our lives. And then ultimately you may be glorified. In Christ's name we give thanks and we say, Amen. Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 24. When I was asked to preach, I was, oh, I did not know what to preach. I had a few passages, and up until recently, I was still struggling, deciding what to teach on. At some point, I thought of writing all these passages on a piece of paper, throw it down, cast lots, and see which one it will fall on. I decided not to do that and decided to go what I thought was the easiest one to preach. So last time we was in Daniel, this time we keep staying in the Old Testament. I do not know if the Lord is trying to tell me something or you something, but we stay in the Old Testament. So read along with me as we read Psalm 24. Reading out of the assigned translation for this pulpit, the English Standard Version, a Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. 
you will receive a blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Salah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Salah. May the Lord bless indeed the reading of His Word. So we come and we find ourselves this morning on Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 really is the last in what is commonly referred to as a trilogy of the Psalms. The trilogy being Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. So that is commonly referred to as the great trilogy of the Psalms. Psalm 22, a well-known psalm, focuses on the king who is suffering, or the king who will suffer, the suffering servant. Psalm 23, we deal with the king who is now shepherd, or the shepherd king. Psalm 24 deals with the king who is coming, or the returning king. In other words, Psalm 22, from our vantage point, look in the past. When the king suffered, Psalm 23, we look at the present time, the king who is now shepherd. Psalm 24 looks forward to the king who will return or the returning king. And it's Psalm in this trilogy, the very first word that the psalm starts with has the title of deity. In Psalm 22, it's the word on Eli. Eli, Eli, my God, my God. Psalm 22 starts with, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. Psalm 24, the Lord, Yahweh is the star who, to whom belongs the earth and the fullness thereof. So each of these psalms starts with the title of deity. In other words, the focus of all of these psalms, Psalm 23, Psalm 22, 23, and 24, where's the focus? On God. The focus is on the king, specifically on the second person of the Godhead. The second person of the Godhead is the focus on Psalm 23, 22, and Psalm 23, and again is the focus of Psalm 24. And that is important as we go through the psalm. That we keep in mind who's the focus. The focus of the psalm is not on our sanctification. It is not us. We're not the main character in the psalm. Many people will read the psalm and it will be, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean eyes. And it's all about us. And it's not. The focus of the psalm is on God. And that focus, by the way, is brought out even by the simple outline. You will see when we see the Psalm 24, verse 1 and 2 deals with the Lord of all the earth. In Psalm 24, in verse 3 and following, 
we deal with the God who is holy. And 7 to 10, which is your next section there, we deal with the King of glory. So the issue again is on who God is, and therefore we are supposed to be in light of who God is. Now, what you might not know, and maybe you do know, is that oftentimes scholars or Bible commentators will want to find an historical context behind its psalm. And many psalms indeed have a specific historical context. And this psalm is no different. Many commentators would want to seek an historical context for the psalm. And the historical context that they would often want to ascribe behind Psalm 24 is 2 Samuel 6. So 2 Samuel 6 are cited often by commentators as the historical context for Psalm 24. So what happens in Psalm 6, 2 Samuel 6, is that David is transferring the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jurium to the house, from the house of Abimelech back to Jerusalem. So you would remember the scene. David comes, he assembles a body of men, they go get the ark, brought it back to Jerusalem. David eventually starts dancing, stripping down. The daughter of Saul, which is his wife, but more the daughter of Saul, is not happy with his performance, confronts him. I think the name was Michal or Michal, or however you pronounce it. I don't know why Saul will give a daughter that kind of name. Sounds like a man's name. But anyway, her name is Michal. And she confronts David. And that section or that historical context is often cited as the background for the psalm. And you might read that when you read commentators or commentaries on your passage of scripture or read commentators. I'm going to disagree with that view. And I'm going to say that I believe and I'm convinced that Psalm 24 transcends the alleged historical context of 2 Samuel 6. I don't think 2 Samuel 6 is behind Psalm 24. I'm convinced that that is the case. In addition, in 2 Samuel 6, the temple has not even yet been built. In fact, this is also recognized by a plethora of both Jewish and Christian scholars that 2 Samuel 6 is not behind Psalm 24. So, we concentrate then on Psalm 24 as it stands, looking forward to the return of the king. Now, the first section that we start with is verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So this is our first section. Our God or the King who is sovereign. So David starts the psalm by declaring that the earth is the Lord. Not only the earth but everything that's in it. Even all those who dwell in it. And then he explains why he can make that statement. Because he is the one who has founded it. He is the one who has established it. He is the one who created it. And really what David does is anchoring that the sovereignty of God is rooted or anchored in him being the creator God. 
He created it all. He made it. He belongs to him. He calls the shots. So David, as he starts the psalm in highlighting who is this king of glory, focuses our attention on him who is the creator. That identical phrase, by the way, the earth is the Lord, is found in Exodus 9.29, when Moses, a hailing down a series of plagues on Egypt for refusing to set the people of God free. In Exodus 9.29, and you don't have to turn there, David is saying, look, the thunder and the hail will stop, and you, Pharaoh, will know that the earth is the Lord's. What, they, what, what Moses was saying is, he who controls even the weather is the one who is my God. Moses is saying, the one who can control the weather is the one to whom this earth belongs to. That's Moses' point. My God that can stop the weather, that can bring thunder down, that can bring hail down, He is the one who controls it all. And when you read that, it immediately comes to mind Job 38, doesn't it? Turn with me to Job 38. I want to show you something. Job 38. And we'll read from verse 1. You know the background of the story of Job. Verse 1, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and make it known to me. And then this, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines his measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Verse 8, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I, God, made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come. And no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? Verse eight sixteen. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is Job doing? What is God interacting with Job? Is she know who I am? He know what it is that I have done? Read Job 38. You know who's calling the shots. You know who is in control. God, the one who controls it all. This is the one David is talking about. This is the one to whom the earth belongs to. The God who controls the weather is sitting high on the throne in the heavens. 
Genesis 6, 17, you don't have to turn there. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God can do that. Jonah 1, 4, the Lord held a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And this, Zechariah 14, 17 says, And if the families of the earth, this is looking forward to the end of times. And if the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, this is in the millennial kingdom. The Lord of hosts, there will be no more rain on them. And many of the other passages of scripture testifies of this both in the Old and the New Testament. Keep that in mind. That is important. Now when you read this, remember, he who controls the weather is the one who has created earth, is the one who is sovereign, is the one who is God. Doesn't Mark 4, 35, 41 comes to mind? Turn with me to Mark 4 quickly. Mark chapter 4 and verses 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come and he said to them, let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus speaking. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Who is this? It's the same question that Daniel asked, or David asked in the psalm, Who is this king of glory? And he's going to answer the question, but he starts with declaring that the God of heaven and earth is sovereign. He's the only one who can control the weather. Jesus is the only one who controls the weather. Now this identical phrase is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.29. And what's the context in 1 Corinthians 10? And why does Paul use it? Well, what is Paul trying to say? You remember the story? It's about eating meat, offered to idols. What does Paul say? Eat whatever you want. Eat whatever is offered on the table. And you ask the question, why? What is Paul's response? Because the earth is the Lord's. But Paul is saying, eat whatever you want because everything that is in it belongs to the Lord. So much for all those who have their very diets and slogans of oh, don't eat this, don't eat that, bananas is bad, carrots are bad, the rice is bad, maize is bad, it never stops. Every year something new comes out that is bad for you. Coffee is bad for you, it is said. <laughs> Paul is saying no, no. In light of who God is, in light of the theology of God found in the Bible, 
follow a seafood diet. You see food, you eat it. That's the biblical diet, folks. There is no other diet. Some people don't want to eat fish. Class was on the beach eating fish. The fish got feelings. Jesus ate it. He created it. Eat food, folks. But what Paul is saying is, the earth is the Lord's. That's the point. That's the theology. And so that's the sovereignty of God is David is establishing. So what you see is that God is in absolute control over this world. God's sovereignty as king is rooted in him as being the creator of this world. Tell me this. Have you ever wondered why Satan or why God allows Satan to run around trying to devour whoever he wants? I mean, think about it. God is in control, right? So why allow Satan to run footloose and fancy free? He could have killed Satan. He could have taken Satan out of the equation. Why, why is Satan doing what he does? And why is God allowing that? It's the same answer to the question, why is there pain and evil in this world? How to grasp this better and perhaps understand what Satan's goal or agenda is, what, what is the desire that came into Satan's heart in Isaiah 14? You don't have to turn there. But as a desire that came into Satan's heart, this was before the fall. Satan wanted to do what? Be king. He wanted to be higher above God. Pride says in his heart. In Ezekiel 28, this is what he says, I will ascend, listen to the I wills, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far regions of the north. That's up. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. So Satan's agenda ultimately he wants to rule and reign. And he will do whatever it takes to thwart God's program. To unseat his position of authority. To unsettle his sovereign plan. We see that with the Messiah. That's his goal. We see that with the nation of Israel to eviscerate them. We see that with the salvation of believers, Satan's agenda is to unseat the sovereignty of God, to unseat God in His glorious position and be on top. That's His goal. That's what drives Him. And yet God still allows Him to do what He does. Why? Why is He doing that? Yes, why? Because think about it. He binds him in the future for a thousand years. Gives him another shot. Let him lose. Do what you want. Get at the people of, this, of the world. Make war again. Keep on and keep on. Because at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, after all and every conceivable scheme and will attempted by Satan, his angels, and mankind, all the suffering, the evil in this world, one truth will reign supreme throughout eternity. What is that one truth? That the God of heaven and earth is sovereign and nothing and no one, no plan, no power can remove him from his throne. 
He is the supreme one. So in triumphing over evil, God is displaying himself to his holy angels. He is displaying himself to you, his saints, in his full glory. And notice this, in his wrath, in his vengeance, in his justice, his judgment, he is displaying his full glory to his angels and his people. So, so what does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? Are you ready for it? Here it comes. It means absolute rule. Absolute rule. When you say that God is sovereign, what you are declaring is that God is the unilateral authority, the king, the single ruler, the sole authority of the universe. He is in full control and no one and nothing can throw out that control. That is what David is establishing. That this king, who I am talking about, is the God of the universe and he is in control. This, however, does not mean that the philosophy of fatalism is true. That's the notion that things are going to be whatever they're going to be. We don't have a say. And they're going to be the way they're going to be just because that's the way things are going to be. In other words, there's no superintending power. There's no overriding plan. That's fatalism. No person doing all these things without any purpose. And many people live their lives with this kind of fatalistic worldview. No. The difference here is that God has an intention with these actions that is not purely arbitrary and most certainly any of his plan is not left to chance. See, when you understand the sovereignty of God, you are declaring that God is purposefully taking all contingencies, all actions, all events and working them together to a predetermined end. Nothing is by chance. Nothing is a surprise to him. Nothing is outside his box. There are no, oops, how did that happen? This does not mean that God, however, motivates everything that happens. In other words, God doesn't motivate evil. He doesn't cause evil. He doesn't do evil. What it does mean is that evil does not change the plan. Evil doesn't cause God to alter the plan or his purpose. He takes all that happens and fits it into the plan, and that plan is already predetermined. You say, was sin part of the equation? Was the fall part of the plan? Think about this. Eternity passed before the creation of this world. What does scripture say? When was Christ slain? When was Christ slain? Before the foundation of the world. In other words, God created this world in full awareness that he was going to redeem the world. So yes, God planned for sin to be in the world. It was in the plan. And a subsequent redemption was in the plan. At the same time, not being responsible for the fall. So ultimately then, why is the evil in the world? The presence of evil in the world that God puts on display is wrath. His vengeance, His justice, His judgment, His righteousness, His holiness, His mercy, His grace, His compassion. All of that is God putting Himself on full and complete display in order that He might forever be glorified for the God that He, he is. The focus then is all on God putting His sovereignty on display for His own glory. And that's good for us, isn't it? 
when we can sleep at night peacefully, when the world runs amok, when wars are happening, when inflation rate and the interest rate goes out of control, we sleep peacefully at night. Why? Because our God is in control. He created it. We don't fear nothing. Because our God is sovereign. And that's the point that David is saying. The earth is the Lord and everything that is in it, the world, even those who dwell therein, for he is the creator. He's the one that made it all. Verse 3 to verse 6 highlights for us then, not only is this God or king sovereign, but this king who is coming is also holy. Now ask this question in verse 3, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Again, notice the universal backdrop of verses 1 and 2. Whom the earth belongs to, the God of heaven. He's addressing the entirety of the earth. And he's asking, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Now, the first question, when we look at this, the first question that comes to mind is, where is this place? Where is the location of the hill of the Lord. Where is this holy place? Now think, now remember this. This question, who shall ascend and who shall stand at the time of David's writing, it is future. It is who is going to ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place. That is still future. But notice the location here. Where does this take place? It takes place where? On earth. This is not taking place in heaven. In fact, heaven is not mentioned once in the entirety of the psalm. This takes place on earth. The events in the psalm takes place and place itself out on this earth. Now in particular, I believe and I'm convinced that this hill and this holy place refers to the Mount of Olives where Jesus will come down or touch down. It is that mountain that Yahweh will stand and a mountain that will split into two, according to Zechariah 14. Further, the Mount of Olives is where both horror and hope collides in Scripture. It is the place where Jesus prayed before his betrayal and crucifixion. It is also the place where Jesus triumphantly ascended into heaven. It is sometimes called the Mount of Anointment, uh, primarily because of the pressing of olives in the region there, for the oil of the olives was used in the anointing of kings. And so sometimes it's called the Mount of Anointment. Interestingly also, uh, but a thousand years before Christ, when David, or King David, was forced out of Jerusalem, and when he was rejected as king by his own son, Absalom, where did he go? He left Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley, and made his way up to the Mount of Olives. There, David climbed that mountain, he wept, and he mourned for himself, for the betrayal he experienced, but also for his own soulfulness. But a thousand years later, Jesus, like David, was too rejected as king in Jerusalem. After his entry 
and to Jerusalem, he crossed the Kidron Valley, climbed the Mount of Olives the day before his betrayal and arrest. He there too, just like David, wept, prayed, and mourned, but not over his unsinfulness, but over our sinfulness, rejection of Israel as he considered the cross before him. Later after the resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. The question and really is akin to Jesus making the declaration that unless you are born again, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I believe and am convinced that what David is referring to, those future hill, those future place where he's asking the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who shall stand in the holy place, is similar to Jesus saying, no man will see and enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And you'll see that in a moment. But now notice the response. So here's the question. Who may or who shall ascend? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now when you read that in its sequential flow, it almost seems as if David is saying, the one who is worthy to stand in the holy place, who is worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, verse 4, he need to have clean hands, he need to have a pure heart, two negatives, must not lift up his soul to heaven, or to what is false, correction, he must not swear deceitfully. Then verse 5, it's almost like it follows. He will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. In other words, it almost seems to indicate a works righteousness program. You do this, you will get the blessing, and you will get the righteousness from the God of his salvation. That seems to be the sequential reading when you see that. However, I believe that verses 4 and 5 are best understood because it's poetic are best understood as presenting a logical progression in reverse order. I believe the reverse order is true. And it's a logical progression. What David does, he starts from verse 3, answering the question, but ultimately, the one who is worthy ends up in verse 5, and it works in the reverse. In other words, verses 5b, justification from God our Savior, that is first. Number 2, blessing from the Lord, that's verses 5a. Verse 3, a sanctified life. That is verses 4. Point number 3. Justification from God our Savior leads to the blessing. The blessing which is a sanctified life. In a nutshell, what David is saying is that the only one who may ascend into the holy place, who may ascend to the seal, in other words, the only one that may come near him, that may approach him, is the one who has been declared righteous by God and who are demonstrating the genuineness of the declaration, his justification through a sanctified life. And so the psalmist, you will notice, still keeps the focus on God. It is God who he justifies. It is God's hill. It is God's holy place. It is God who alone can make you fit to enter. Because based on this question, 
Who shall ascend? Who shall send? If you look at the answers in verse 4, here's the truth. No one qualifies. No one qualifies. Now verses 4a. David is saying clean hands. What does that mean? The reference there is really referring to being innocent. To be free from any sort of guilt. To be free from punishment. Your hands are clean. There's nothing unclean with you. You have clean hands. You are innocent. Who can say that? A pure heart really speaks of one who has and is maintaining his integrity. He who is conscious are pure and clean. And heart in the Old Testament often is referring to the totality of the person. What he's saying is, the only one who is worthy has clean hands. He's innocent. He's free of any guilt. And his totality of his being is pure. Who is that? Matthew 5, 8. Jesus makes the same claim. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Where we find ourselves with the Beatitudes. Chapter 5. Listen to this. Now, what is, they, what is Jesus doing? Verses 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive money. Here is verse 8. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall she God. And then verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for this is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Verse 8, blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God really functions as a kind of turning point in this Beatitudes. What Jesus is saying in verses 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have true remorse and repentance of their sin who are broken over the sin. So he starts with them first acknowledging their own sin. Those who mourn, genuine mourners, who are humble, they are meek. They come to this place acknowledging they need God. They have nothing of their own. And then verse 8, Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. It is the poor in heart, verse 9, that will be called the peacemakers. It is the poor in heart that will be called the sons of God. It is the poor in heart who will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is the poor in heart to whom belong the kingdom of heaven. The poor in heart becomes that focal turning point in Matthew. And that is what Jesus is reinforcing. But David goes further, and he states that not only must a man be pure, not only must he be clean with his hands, but he must also be a man who does not lift up his soul to what is false. He must not swear deceitfully. And, and the idea of to lift up one's soul means to offer one's deepest commitment of the whole self. He said the man who are able to approach God, the requirement for ascending to the place of God is the one who are completely and totally innocent, who are free from any sort of guilt, who has an intact and a clear conscience, whose deepest and sincerest commitment of his entire being is to God and God alone and not to any sort of idol 
in whose life he says is marked by truth and honesty. That's the requirement. That's the standard. So again, with reference to the question, who may send? Who may stand in the kingdom of God on that future day? The answer: Who is worthy? No one but Christ. Essentially, what David is doing is tearing down the entire works-based salvation system. In answering the question, David is providing the answer in verse 5. The one who will possess a clean hands, the one who will possess a pure heart, a sole commitment to the sovereign God is the one who has been imputed with the righteousness from the God of his salvation. That's imputation right there. What David is doing is saying in this incredibly poetic fashion, he's saying, listen, in order to see God, in order to approach him, in order to stand in his presence, you need to be justified. God has to grant unto you divine righteousness, not your own. And when that happens, you will receive a blessing. Yes, a blessing. You will receive clean hands, a pure heart, and a life whose devotion is exclusively God's word. What you have in these few verses is justification. You have conversion and you have transformation. What does Ezekiel 36 say? Listen to this. Ezekiel 36, 25. God is saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I, God, will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That, folks, is the promise of the new covenant regeneration right there. That's new birth. That's transformation. That's sanctification. The kingdom has always belonged to those of pure hearts, to those who have been cleansed, to those who have been justified. Think about that. The psalmist says an end of that in verse 6. Listen to that ending. It says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I think that's the current generation of those. Then he ends, Salah. And what does Salah mean? Pause. Think about what you've just read. This God is sovereign. The king who is coming, the king of glory, is the creator of heaven and earth. That king is holy because nothing that is defiled can ascend to his hill, can enter his holy place. He's a holy king. He's a sovereign king. And then finally, our last point. He's asking this question. He says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. 
Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now when you read that, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come. I mean, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, what is this heads, and what is the gates, and, and, and what is this ancient doors that he's talking about, that the King of glory may come in? I mean, is it physical gates? Is it metaphorical gates? What's happening? Now, many commentators have different views. Some believe that the heads and the gates that the king of glory is coming into refers to the believer's heart. And I can see why they make that argument based on the preceding section. Some believe it refers to Jerusalem when David transferred the ark from Kirith Juriam to Jerusalem. So they see it as physical literal gates. David went to fetch the ark, brought it back into Jerusalem. The gates had to be flung open for the ark was coming in. And so some uses the background of 2 Samuel 6. Some refers to it at Jerusalem still, but at his so-called triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Some see it as heaven. They say when Christ ascended into heaven, there was festivities and there was the glory that came when Christ entered into heaven, and what he was saying, you are now worthy because you died and you, spared, you shed your blood. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And they will argue it's a return of the king post his ascension. Some are saying it is refers also to heaven, but not to the first ascension, but to the second ascension when Christ will go back into heaven with his saints after the rapture. And then the last view is it is Jerusalem, but it is future, and it takes place at his second coming to establish his earthly kingdom. That's what that refers to. And I believe that the right answer to this question, are you ready for this, is in fact that last view. I'm convinced that after careful study, that these last few verses has in view the second coming of Christ, and the focus is on Jerusalem as he physically comes through the gate facing east according to Ezekiel or the east gate towards the Temple Mount. I believe that the passage is all and is everything, and it is literal. I believe it's physical. Everything in the psalm has been physical, has been true, has been literal. It's a literal hill. It is a literal holy place. It's a physical place that will be there. And I believe the ancient doors or the gates that he's talking about has a reference to the gates that the Messiah will come through as he proceed through to the Temple Mount on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah really unpacks it well for us. It says, talks about the prince and who is coming and from the east gate or the gate facing east and where he will be. But before we unpack this, I think I saw that 10 minutes after, so I'm going to claim some time back. But before we unpack this, let me say this about the third view. Some say 
It refers to the triumphant entry of Christ when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Some are saying that is what it means. Now quickly turn with me to Zechariah 9 verses 9 to 10. That is the book just before Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteousness and having salvation is he. That's where they get it from. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's what I'm convinced and what I believe, is that verse 9 is actually referring to that day when Christ entered on a donkey in Jerusalem, but... It is not the triumphant entry. There's a significance of that event. The triumphant entry is still future. That takes place from verses 10 and following. That is when he comes the second time on earth, establishes kingdom. And if you listen to the language of a warrior, that's when he comes. And that is, I believe, is the actual triumphant entry. I, I disagree with many who say the first Entrance into Jerusalem is a triumphant entry. I don't think that is true. I think that is still future. Now, quickly, read with me in Luke 19. I want to show you something. Because I think the event is still significant in place in here. Luke 19. And we'll read from verse 28. Luke 19 and verse 28. Uh, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Oliver, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, when, where on entering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever set yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, he answered. If I tell you, I tell you, if... These were silent, the very stones would cry out. So they shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Mark 11, 10 adds, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is what the crowds are echoing. 
Matthew 21 adds, the crowd saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. John 12, the crowd says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And we know that it's a fulfillment that verse 9 that first part is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy because John says that in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, quote, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king, is, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's skull. And it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Oh, what does that mean? And what really then happened on that day? You see the spreading of the cloaks on the road while the others spread leafy branches that they cut from the fields? We know that according to 2 Kings 9.13, that act was primarily reserved for kings and conquerors. So that's what they've done. They also knew very well the prophecy of Zechariah 9-10. to And so... In full declaration of who the Messiah is, they completely missed the full significance of the event. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey through the gates on his way to the Mount of Olives, the crowd openly declared him as Savior and King. And notice, and this is something exciting. Since the post-exilic times, for each day of the week, a psalm was sung in the post-exilic temple during the morning worship. So each morning, a psalm was sung in the post-exilic temple. And we know what those psalms is that were sung each morning. On a Sunday morning, they would sing Psalm 24. Therefore, on Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people were shouting, Hosanna, and blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And while that was going on, the priests in a temple were chanting, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. When the city in John was saying, Who is this? The priests in the temple were chanting, Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. They chanted their own indictment. Now what was happening? You see on the tail end of Israel's 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God gave the nation some specific instructions. He says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, that's the 10th of Nisan, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. He says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male old. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So, now watch this and pay attention. On Nisan 10, each family was to choose a one-year-old lamb without blemish and care for it for five days. On Nisan 14, they were to slaughter it just before sundown and put its blood on the lentils and doorposts of their home. Now, because a new Hebrew day begins at twilight, that same night, 
would have been Nisan 15. It was on this date that Israel left Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, the date God redeemed the Israelites out of slavery. And Passover has been a transformative event for Judaism ever since. Every year they celebrated on Nisan 15, which is around March or April on our Gregorian calendars. Now let's connect the dots. Six days before Passover, John says, go fetch the call, the donkey. So six days before Passover, put Jesus in Bethany on Nisan 9, 15 minus 6. The next day would have been Nisan 10. The same date that the Israelites were to bring lambs without blemish into their homes. So almost 1,500 years after the first Passover in Egypt, Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey on Nisan 10. Christ is presented to them as the Passover lamb. Christ is crucified on Nisan 14. They, looking for the king who is coming, they declare this king is coming on that day. And yet... They slaughtered him as the Passover lamb. Now, like I said earlier, I believe this to be the literal hidden gates leading to the Temple Mount of Olives. And we'll, we'll, we'll examine that more on Wednesday night. But the reference to ancient doors really can also be translated as everlasting doors or old or, or doors of antiquity. And I think the everlasting doors or doors of everlasting makes a bit more sense in that the kingdom that he's about to set up is an eternal kingdom. So in that sense, it could be translated and be lifted up. Correction, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O everlasting doors. Why? Because the king that is coming is going to set up an eternal everlasting kingdom. So he's asking again, Open up. On that day, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's Jeconiah 9 to 10 and following right there. This refers to the events about to happen as he sets foot on earth in his second coming. This is the moment where the Lord as the great warrior destroys the enemy of his people. And take hold of Jerusalem and set up his internal kingdom. In other words, the creator of this world, the sovereign one, the one who made all the things on the earth, the one who owned it all, the one who is holy, the one who justifies us, he is the king of glory. And the only one you may ascend and the only way you may enter his holy place is if you have received his righteousness. He says, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. And that title refers to the host who surrounds his throne, those who praise and consult him and carry out his decisions as sovereign ruler of this world. That is the king of glory. David is saying, and we close with this. God is sovereign. This God 
is holy. No one is worthy to approach him unless you have received his righteousness, unless you have clean hands and a pure heart. And then he says, this king that I'm talking about, this second person of the Trinity is coming. And when he's coming, you better be ready. He's coming. And when he's coming, he's going to make war. Things Zechariah mentions when he walks, the, those who were killed as he walks with his robe through, it's almost like the, the blood of those who die will cause like a river of blood. So much when he walks through it, his robe is full of blood. This is one who is a victor. This is one who is strong. This is the Lord strong and mighty. This is the Lord mighty in battle when he comes. And he is coming. And when he comes, he'll be known as the king of glory. One last point. The king of glory means this. That he's the beginning of it and he's the end of it. To be the king of glory means the glory starts and ends with the king. The king to whom belongs the glory. And that is the question this morning. The king of glory, is he your king? And you worship him as king. Let us pray. Gracious Father, as we come this morning, considering that you are the sovereign one, that you are the holy one. And because of your holiness, we are not worthy to enter because of our sin. And yet you came. And you giving us your righteousness. Your salvation. You gave us. You made us fit to enter your holy place. You justified us so that we may come into your kingdom. And oh Lord, we look forward to that day when you will come. We look forward to the day when you will vindicate your name amongst the nations. When those who refuse to obey you will bow the knee and say, Indeed, he is the king. When they will beat up themselves in shock when they see you, the one who is king of all kings. Lord, we thank you for your word. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.